East Side Radio is a proud supporter of The Voice, but there's quite a bit of confusion out there among the public as to what it means, and there's certainly misrepresentations being made. In order to try and clarify some of these issues, I've got on the line Dr. Kate Galloway. She's Associate Professor of Law at Griffiths University. Good afternoon, Kate. Good afternoon, David. Thanks very much for coming on air. Now, you've just written a recent piece where you focused on claims that people are making and that the similar sorts of claims when the Native Titles Act was passed back in 1993, that um, they're coming for your back garden if you have the voice. That's right. Uh, I mean, for I've worked in Native Title and I'm a property lawyer and academic and to hear these claims is absolutely astonishing um, but they're out there and the piece that I wrote explained that there's two reasons why these claims are manifestly false. The first is that the Voice to Parliament amendment that is proposed to be inserted in the Constitution only provides for establishment of the Voice and that it may make representations to the Parliament and Government. So that doesn't say anything about grabbing people's land or changing the law or anything like that. And the second reason is the way that native title works is that anyone who owns private land in Australia, so freehold land that we generally have in cities, uh, that land has extinguished native title and there's no way for that to come back. So claims on native title can only apply where there's been an ongoing presence on the land, isn't that correct? Uh, Pretty much, yes. So there's two things that are are required. The first uh, threshold is that native title has not been extinguished and the way that native title can be extinguished, well, it will definitely be extinguished when there is a grant of land by the government. So all of the land that we live on in cities has already been granted by the government So that means it's been extinguished. The second threshold is that there must have been that ongoing connection uh, between the traditional owners and the land. Now, in uh, parts of Victoria, there's been information disseminated which has made claims that, you know, they're coming for your land if you have the voice. And it's rather sad that it gets to this, isn't it? Yeah, I think... I don't... Some of the claims that I've seen on Facebook... The the genesis seems to be in um, concerns about the United Nations and the World Economic Forum and a lot of these sorts of uh, conspiracy theories that were around during COVID and they seem to have sort of manifested in these more expansive claims. Uh, So I think that has fuelled some of those claims. Um, They've also been, well, certainly after the Mabo decision was handed down in 1992, there were quite overt orchestrated claims by, for example, mining companies back in the day who took out full-page ads in the national newspapers claiming that our backyards would be taken. So the current sort of hysteria around uh, this, this idea, this perceived threat, It's not the first time that these concerns have been aired. And I think sort of from where I sit, sometimes it seems that whenever, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people seem to be uh, making some sort of headway um, within the law, these concerns start to manifest. Now, the idea of the voice is basically very simple, isn't it? It's to create a representative body 
that can have input into Parliament, but can give advice, but that's all it can do. The idea is that the Indigenous peoples, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, can try and steer governments towards the issues that they think are important and, and how to handle them. Yeah, that, that's correct. So um, we've seen in the last 20 years or so a number of proposals for constitutional reform. And each time there's been a proposal for reform, governments have rejected it. And a lot of those proposals contained more um, sort of substantive provisions. They contained uh, sort of rights and um, and you know rights to language and anti-discrimination rights, and each of those was rejected. And so, in developing the current proposal, um, the drafters were very aware of the threshold of tolerance for a constitutional amendment, and for that reason, they rejected. Um, any sort of amendment that would go down that pathway of giving those sort of substantive rights. And instead, they made it the most modest proposal that they could that still afforded recognition. And so that proposal is, first of all, that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are recognised as first peoples of this land, and then that this voice would be established and it's sole function is to make representations to government. And the government may or may not accept their representations. Exactly right. And in that respect, some people say, oh, well, you know, it it, it doesn't have any power at all. Why bother? I think um, one of the part of the thinking behind this is that if you have an organisation or an institution that has been approved by the Australian people, it will have some sort of legitimacy. It will have some some sort of political standing. People will accept that it's meant to be there. And with that standing, it will be able to um, hold government to account so it can make representations. But if government continues to refuse to listen, um, then it can. this body can say, well, you know, can tell the public that government is not making the changes that need to be made in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. And so that generates a form of accountability that lends itself to better governance. Now, there's, I think, so I understand it, there'll be 24 members of The Voice. How are they selected? Well, this is yet to be determined. At the moment, uh, what we have is what's referred to as design principles. So part of this is a bit chicken and egg. So some people say, oh, we need all the details up front. But of course, we can't have the details until we actually implement the constitutional change. So as a way to deal with this sort of impasse, because if the proposal gets up, the government will need to uh, consult with the broader community. It'll need to consult with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to sort of refine... Uh, the the um, proposal. So at the moment, what we do know is that the body, the principles uh, for the establishment of the body include that it will be made up of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, that um, they will be representative uh, men and women, older people and younger people, uh, and, um, and that they will be selected by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And I think that... Um, I think that with those principles, we can be fairly confident that um, that 
it will be the sort of organisation you would expect to see in these circumstances. So these will be selected by the Indigenous communities, uh, not by white politicians? That's exactly right. They will be selected by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And in the Karma Langton report, part of, part of the idea with this also was that there would be um, a national voice, but there would be uh, state and sort of local or regional um, committees as well that would feed into this, organi- this body. So you haven't got a situation where you've got sort of, you know, people making claims about elites and these abstract elites who don't know what's going on on the ground. The, the very idea behind it, these principles, is that they will be connected with grassroots communities to learn uh, what works best for those communities and communicate that to the parliament and government. One of the arguments against it that people are using is that it gives special treatment to the Aboriginal people. Why should they, ha- they have that? Why can't other people have that? But basically the Aboriginals have been under the race powers of Section 51 of the Constitution, uh, they have been singled out anyway. There's been special powers that have actually been used to the disadvantage of Aboriginal people. Yeah, that's correct. It's a really um, interesting argument that people are putting, and I guess in one sense I can understand why people might feel that way. The reality, however, is that government already makes special laws about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and it does so because they are the first peoples of this land. So, for example, things like um, uh, native title and cultural heritage are matters that directly affect them. So we'll continue to have these special laws. At the moment, those laws, as you observe, are made under the so-called race power of the Constitution. There has only ever been uh, one group of people that has fallen under this power and that is Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people so and and as you also observe the state doesn't have to make um, beneficial laws they can make laws that are detrimental to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people so out of all the people in this country all the communities in this country there's only one group of people who have laws made about them uh, under this power and that is uh, First Nations people and yet they have no say over what those laws might look like and how they uh, can affect their communities. I mean, basically... So the voice proposal is designed to remedy that, yes. That's allowed children to be taken away, for example. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. And, and um, Indigenous children are still being taken away in quite shocking numbers. Uh, really? Even today? today? Yes, they are. Yes. Yes. I didn't realise that. So Yeah, the chi- well, the child protection system is doing it. So it's not under the old policies that you would have seen in the 1950s and 60s, um, but child protection policies are taking away more, uh, proportionately more Indigenous children than non-Indigenous children, yes. Okay. Um, And, of course, Aboriginal people weren't even counted in the census until 1967, were they? That's correct. And so a, a lot of things that people... You know, many many people, ordinary people, good people of good faith, living in cities and whatever, um, may not ever have met an indigenous person. Um, a lot of people might think, oh, all this stuff is still historical. You know, it doesn't. It's not. It's not contemporary. Um, that is not correct. There are still. Uh, there is still a lot of intergenerational trauma that is being experienced within communities as a consequence of stolen generations and the implications of colonisation, 
Um, I've, I've known people not that much older than me. I knew one woman uh, from the Torres Strait who still carried around a card in her, uh, in her purse that gave her permission to leave the reserve because she, ne- she always worried that those laws had never quite been repealed. You know, every time she saw a police officer, she'd be concerned that her children were going to be taken away. So we think these things are historical, but there are people who walk amongst us today who continue to experience uh, the uh, detriments of colonisation. Yeah, people should appreciate that. Um, There's still a lot of confusion being sown out there. The principle of it is very simple, and the powers, in fact, of the voice are very, very limited, really. So the scare campaign has been working quite well. For instance, I, I had an SMS from Jacinta Price. I don't know how she got my phone number, but it said, if you don't know, vote no. And I thought that was a very slick line because a lot of people don't really know. Yeah, so uh, Professor Ann Toomey from Sydney Law School has made a YouTube video about how concerned she is at this slogan because she says that, Individual voters are giving away their personal sovereignty, that power that we have to be able to engage in this sort of mass civic event of voting for a change to the Constitution. And you're giving that away by saying, well, I don't know, so I'm going to vote no. Um, Certainly, you know, I'm an academic, I'm an educator, uh, and I'm a lawyer, so it concerns me greatly to ensure that members of the public are able to understand the proposal and are in a position to make an informed choice. Anyone who's confused, I would suggest read the words of the proposed section. They're plain words, and I think most people would be able to understand them. I mean, Yusinda Price is also linking it to communism, and uh, <laughs> I thought this is a real throwback to Cold War days. Yeah, I don't quite understand those sorts of arguments. I think one of the challenges for the No campaign to me seems to be that there isn't a coherent argument against it. There seems to be a number of scattergun sorts of arguments that are being thrown out there. And this is, you know, we've got a level of understanding of our constitutional framework, quite a low level of civics education in this country. And I think that means that people, it's easy for people to feel confused or uncertain about this. Yeah. One of the other bogeys in this is treaty. So the claim, well, it, it's working both ways. Some are saying, well, if we have the voice, the next thing is treaty, a horror shock. And then the others, there are others like Warren Mundine has just said that he's not supporting the voice because he wants treaty. Yeah, the Uluru Statement from the Heart, uh, which came out, was released in uh, 2017, is a form of petition. It's, it's um, my colleagues and I consider it to be um, part of Australia's administrative law history. It's this, it's a formal legal document that is presented um, as a call for um, creating proper legal relations between the Australian state and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. In that document, the call was for voice, treaty, truth in that order. And so I guess it's never been hidden that um, Indigenous Australians are seeking a treaty 
or treaties with with various uh, with the various nations um, and the Australian state and of course the states. So um, there shouldn't be concern, I don't think, with the public about treaties. Treaties are already progressing. Uh, Victoria is well on the way to negotiating a treaty. The Northern Territory, um, South Australia is a bit on and off with with, with treaties. Queensland is is on the way. So um, many of the Australian states are already engaging in treaty process and this is something that we would anticipate happens at a federal level as well. Yeah, I we don't think people are aware first. of that at all. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So we need the voice first because the voice allows for um, uh, a group of people to be able to start that process off. They are in a position then to be able to negotiate the, the basis of um, engagement between um, between Indigenous people and the state. And if you look at the First Peoples Assembly in Victoria, um, that's an example of an institution that has been established as a means to um, represent uh, Victorian Aboriginal people um, in their negotiations with the state. Yeah. I mean, basically, Australia is a long way behind what other countries have done, such as Canada and Finland and, and many places, with coming to some sort of formal arrangement with the Indigenous peoples? Yeah, so Australia has never entered into proper legal relations with its First Peoples. Other colonised countries have done so. I'm not suggesting that it's been an easy ride for the Maori in New Zealand, for example, but today, with a receptive government, they have the foundation of the Treaty of Waitangi to be able to um, improve the lives of Maori people. We have nothing in Australia um, to provide that foundation for enhancing the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And these are people who have lived under the yoke of government um, for since uh, since colonisation. It just seems to me, Kate, that the government hasn't done a good job in selling this. Uh, it's difficult to tell. Um, it's difficult to tell. Uh it's, I, I am not in a position to make assessments of political strategy or whatever negotiations have gone on there. All I can do is every day um, get out and encourage people to educate themselves. There's plenty of good and easy to understand resources out there and for the public to really take that power um, that is given to them under this referendum um, and learn about this proposal, learn about the history that we have in this country and to make an informed choice on voting day. Yeah, ignorance is not bliss, is it? People Correct. have a civic duty to know what it's about and it's not very complicated. Uh, to me, it's not, but I've been living and breathing this for some time now. Um, but uh, I think, and that's where I, I would take people back to the words of the proposed constitutional amendment because they are simple words, they are easy to read and um, that should give people some comfort about uh, what's going on. Well, let's hope things work out. Uh, thanks very much, Kate. Thanks so much, David. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Dr Kate Galloway, Associate Professor of Law at Griffith University. This is Drive Tuesday.